Hi, my name is Nathan Cook and you're listening to HDR Brews, in other words, high degree researchers drinking coffee. This small show is designed for academics to put their research interests in the spotlight. Please sit, learn and enjoy a cuppa while we do too. Hello and welcome to HDR Brews, in other words, high degree researchers drinking coffee. This episode's researcher is Luke Stajic and a cup of coffee is brought to you by Quest here in Burley. Um, having just uh, an espresso, I've just poured off a, a new coffee machine my friend gave me. I'm still learning uh, the ways. I don't think my steam one works, uh, so we'll figure that probably that's why he gave it to me. Uh, what are you drinking, Luke? I've got my usual combination, which is a peppermint tea and an instant soy iced latte. Oh, cool! What a good combo. That's awesome. You said you said you had a like, hot and cold beverage. I thought it was going to be like hot tea, cold bowl of water, but that's awesome. Mm, yeah, I, I try to have some peppermint tea after eating, and then that's my go-to coffee. That's awesome. And, and you're down, you're down in Adelaide, aren't you, Luke? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, awesome. Wow. So I met Luke. Um, actually, I didn't. I've only met him today, really, um, in the last ten minutes. But um, Luke presented at a. Um, well, actually, you talk about it, Luke. But I'm not really all over it. So uh, go us through. I guess the way that I kind of connected with you. Sure. So. The UN is in 2021 hosting the first Food Systems Summit, United Nations Food Systems Summit, which is an initiative of the United Nations Secretary General. And it's essentially trying to get food on the international agenda. And that's in terms of health, that's in terms of the environment, livelihoods, uh, resistant, resilience to climate change, and I'm involved with the leadership team with one of the five action tracks, which is essentially the five areas that the summit is focusing on. Um, so they are healthy and nutritious diet, probably focusing more on lower income or areas with food insecurity. That's action track one. Action track two is sustainable consumption, which I'm involved with. And then the others are livelihoods, a sustainable production and resilience. So I was presenting a paper I had co-authored on one of the public forums of the Action Track 2, so the Sustainable Consumption Action Track, which is essentially people involved in the summit trying to get input of the public and share updates with the public to try to make it as inclusive as possible. So I was presenting the paper to one of these public forums, which I am aware you were attending. Yeah, awesome. And how did you find the experience? There's some pretty big, um, big chiefs in that lineup of people that were there. Um, you know, so that's pretty cool to be, you know, I guess part of that team and involved with them. How do you find that experience? Yeah, yeah, it has been really interesting. Uh, very grateful to be involved. That public forum was a little bit intimidating actually because I found out about. 10 minutes before the uh, event that I was going to be debating the director of nutrition of the World Health Organization, <laughs> which was a little bit intimidating as somebody who's still a student, uh, but it ended up being more of a conversation than a debate and we agreed with a lot. So that was interesting, but yeah, it's a really interesting opportunity, especially to see what different people around the world think in terms of sustainable consumption, which can at times be quite contentious topics. So it's been a really eye-opening experience. Yes, definitely. I know obviously we're stuck where we are at the moment in terms of travel and international, you know, relations and stuff like that. But 
there's huge, I guess, differences in places in the world that we live. And you, you touched on that earlier about when you're on, you know, when you're on your holiday traveling and stuff where you see different things. We're very in our own little world, you know, like what can we do for our community, which is great. What can we do for the greater, you know, Australia? But it's really, I was on a podcast last night, like it's a collaborative effort, you know, if we're going to tackle these food problems, these climate change problems, it's not just, um, you know, uh, Luke and I sitting behind computers writing papers. It's really the getting everyone involved, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's a big opportunity, but can also be a challenge because I think that one of the, yeah, one of the challenges with things such as the UN Food Systems Summit or anything UN is that you're pushing for a global agenda, which is really important because lots of these things are global challenges such as climate change. But at the same time, you got to make sure that works for local communities and regions and countries. Otherwise, there's not going to be any buy-in and you're also not going to, you're, pro you're probably going to get a lot of backlash and then also, it's just inherently important to make sure that you're making things work for people on the ground rather than talking about lofty global agendas. So I really see that and making that work for different contexts where people have completely different challenges and resources available to them. For example, how easy it is for them to afford and access healthy food um, as one of the really important things that we need to keep in mind when we're discussing these sorts of topics. Yeah, there's definitely not like a, um, I'm, I'm pretty sure you've got Woolworths in Adelaide, but there's no like Woolworths and Coles around the corner, you know, in a lot in a lot of these countries that are affected by, like you said earlier, you know, rising sea levels or, you know, food insecurity. They can't, yeah, exactly. just, they can't just say, oh, you can't just say like, oh, budget better or, um, you know, write a list, which is kind of like the strategies that we use in terms of food waste um, at the moment for, you know, um, I guess, populised uh, urban countries, but it's a bit different, isn't it? So... Well, plenty to, plenty to discuss today and I could we see you for hours but um, you know as students we've both got stuff to do places to be so um, I'll start us off Luke um, so first of all what is your area of research? My area of research is essentially food systems so that's a bit of a bit of jargon but it essentially means everything involved with producing and consuming and processing and marketing and transporting food so essentially from where it's produced on the farm, to how it ends up on your plate, and then how you waste it or consume it, but then also all the politics and economics and environmental factors that influence what actually gets produced and consumed. And my particular focus is on sustainability, environmental sustainability, and also public health coming from a health background. So that has led me to focus on diet as one of my main areas of interest that's amazing yeah and so diets and so i guess in terms of the whole food system you're more at the end you're more at the consumption stage end of the stuff that you look at yeah so i think i i, I have two folks foci one of them is diets so that's um what are the actual impacts of different diets on health of the environment but also what leads people to consume different things for example culture accessibility of food, pricing, uh, habits, all, all those things that influence how we can help people to make, uh, I guess, consume healthier and more sustainable food. And another interest of mine, which I also conduct research about is essentially the politics of food. So the different 
priorities and values and beliefs that different stakeholders have in terms of food. Uh, so that would be mainly industry bodies, uh, governments, NGOs, and research is the different stakeholders I've focused on most so far. And like climate change, it's essentially lots of controversy and contestation around food. And I am trying to understand what kind of values or beliefs or assumptions or priorities are leading people to have such different ideas about what the problems are and what solutions we need. So in summary, I guess my, yeah, so my two focuses are diet and then politics of food more broadly. And that definitely ties into what we just mentioned at the start there about everyone's got a different agenda. Like you can talk about, like you said, a global agenda, but if old mate down the road is getting affected by the global agenda, he's going to arc up, you know, and say, hey, this is affecting my, because you have, I would say, and this is, I'm not sure, really sure about this, but I'm sure you've got like micro food systems and then like max huge ones and it just goes out and out and out to like the greater system of, you know, food in general, but then also like in the community, like the local context or, you know, states, um, countries, stuff like that as well. So um, correct me if I'm wrong, but yeah. So it's just, everyone's got a different idea of what they think uh, can work for them, uh, but not really necessarily potentially what can work for everyone. Yeah, exactly. And that leads some people to think that we've got massive problems. Like one of the phrases that get thrown around a lot is that the food system is broken, which is quite vague. And I think could be interpreted in lots of different ways. Uh, but I'm more of the opinion that it's working as designed and the design is benefiting certain people and not benefiting other people. Same as the breakdown of energy, for example, it's not an accident that we have mainly fossil fuels, even though some people might consider that as broken, that's there for a reason and some people are benefiting from it. So I think that really trying to understand and find synergies between those different agendas is something that I am particularly interested in. I, I know some people think that that's a bit naive and that it's impossible because these people's agendas are essentially just always going to be in opposition. But trying to better manage that is something that I'm really passionate about. That's awesome. Yeah, I love it. And like, as I said, we could, we'd sit here all day. There was a few things that just went by my mind there. Um, but I've, I've got that many thoughts going through my head. It's got, I've kind of lost it there. But no, it's just a really, I think it's a really important area to be investigating and also to, I guess, get on top of in terms of what's going to happen in the next, say, five to 10 years, as well as even into long, longer than that. I really love that word, uh, design that you use there like it's not it's not broken it's just been designed a certain way and it's, and it's working but it just I guess that the process of how it's working now is not uh, benefiting that you know maybe the maximum amount of people that it could because um, it was designed not to do that in the first place potentially um, so that's mm. great I really love that word and it's definitely a really good way to look at it as well compared to people just like you're saying throwing out a big term like something broken yeah, and I think often these things were designed to solve particular problems and did a really great job at that, but then it's created other problems. So in terms of more concrete, concrete example, listeners might have heard of the Green Revolution, which was in the late 20th century, which was essentially when we started having more intensive agriculture. So for example, using synthetic inputs such as fertilizers and irrigation and pesticides to, which really massively increased the amount of food that we were able to produce. So the guy who 
essentially uh, was credited with leading the Green Revolution, is uh, said to have saved over a billion lives. So potentially the most lives any individual humans ever saved. But at the same time, that's meant that we favour certain growing certain crops over others, which means that we don't have a very diverse food supply in some regards. And it's also created a whole bunch of environmental problems. So often we have done a really great job of solving one problem for in, in, in that case, producing enough quantity of food. But then uh, if you don't keep in mind consequences that will have in 20 or 30 or 50 years, then you can yeah, and even like like you said, quantities of food we've got, we you know we, we throw a third of our food out in Australia, and it's like we've definitely got enough there, like um, to be able to, to go around um, for what we currently have. But we might you know say even we probably even don't in terms of a global context. But it's um, fixing one and then creating ten more, so it's just like chasing your tail a bit, isn't it? Um, mm, yeah, exactly. Could you please take us through your research pathway loop from beginning until now? Yeah, sure. So I have only actually began to focus on research probably the last, what is it, almost middle of 2021. So my first real research experience was 2018. But before then, I started studying a medical degree in 2013. Uh, and I did four years out of that, out of a six year bachelor's at Adelaide University. And that I, I kind of realized early on that that wasn't really what I was hoping it would be in that it wasn't very much aligned with my interest and there was really very little focus on prevention along with some other things that just meant it wasn't a great personal fit. Um, so then the next few years after that, I really struggled with, if I don't want to do medicine, what do I want to do? Um, so that was, that required a lot of thinking and trying to get different experiences. And I, the experiences that really helped me were actually when I was traveling overseas. So the first was when I visited the Amazon, that was end of 2015. And I was really interested in nature, but really didn't know anything about it and learned that the Amazon was being deforested quite a lot faster and at a much bigger scale than I'd re realized, which really shocked me because I was seeing all these amazing animals and the benefit that local people also got from it in terms of tourism and self-sufficiency. But at the same time, it was being cut down at a really shocking rate. And I kind of assumed that must be because, for example, roads or people building a city or their house. Um, but it actually turned out that the vast majority of it was due to agriculture. And the vast majority of that was due to livestock production, which I found quite surprising. And then that, 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 kind of, that kind of was shocking at the time, but kind of went to the back of my mind. And then over the next couple of years, I became more interested in nature, I guess, for the enjoyment of nature and still had it in my mind that it's something that's nice to have. And I really liked it, but I knew that other people like art, for example. So uh, I guess I didn't really see it as fundamental to human flourishing. Um, but something that really challenged that understanding I had was actually quite quite recently, actually, which was beginning of 2018, where I was in the Caribbean and I was visiting an island, um, which is the world's most densely inhabited island. There's about a few thousand people on an island 
not larger than a couple of football fields and it's just above sea level. And I went there and met lots of people who told me and showed me some photos of just a couple of weeks earlier where lots of the island had actually been flooded. And this was becoming increasingly common uh, with rising sea levels, of course. And this really blew my mind because I knew about climate change and I knew it was a problem. And I knew that I had a vague sense that we need to do something about it. But I imagined this as something in the future, something that was largely an environmental problem, something that was quite abstract. But here I was meeting people who already had their homes being threatened due to climate change and were not particularly wealthy. So I didn't really have the easy option of just moving somewhere else. And lots of their culture, for example, was built around the heritage of living in this one place. So that really challenged my understanding of the importance of environmental problems to humans, essentially. And then over that year, 2018, I looked more and became more interested. So I learned, for example, that the World Health Organization had declared climate change as the greatest threat to global health, which also blew my mind because I'd never heard about this before. And then I got more interested, essentially, and um, I guess realized that my long-standing interest in nature was something that was actually quite important for the future of humanity, really. So I really wanted to tackle that, but really had no idea how, because I had quite a limited skill set having just studied a few years of medicine, and I knew that energy was a big problem, but didn't know anything about energy. I'm not particularly technically minded. So I really had no idea what to do or how I could actually contribute. And then there was two things that happened that year. Um, one of them was when I was volunteering in a remote indigenous community and I saw a baby being fed Fanta out of a baby bottle, which was obviously quite shocking. Yes. This really, I guess was, uh, in medicine, I'd seen lots of people suffering from obesity and the really dire effects that has on people's health. And one of the reasons I wasn't particularly interested in medicine was because that was essentially not given much attention at all in terms of prevention. But that kind of really showed me how, like, I guess obviously as a baby, you, you can't make a decision yourself about what am I gonna eat? What am I gonna have in my baby bottle? But that was setting this baby up for quite a bad health situation, which has lots of implications for the rest of their life. Mm. And then later in the year, I was in Papua New Guinea and saw lots of uh, kids who were suffering from stunting, which was essentially a severe form of malnourishment. And Papua New Guinea actually has one of the highest stunting rates in the world, even though it's only a few hours from Australia. Uh, about half of kids are stunted, which has lots of effects on your cognitive development and therefore your ability to get an education and a job and all these sorts of things. So those two events really put food back in my mind. And I remembered that when I was in the Amazon, I learned about food contributing to deforestation. So I decided to look a little bit more into the impact of food on the environment and was really shocked that food is responsible for about a quarter of emissions, the largest source of species loss, deforestation, water use, land use, soil degradation, essentially most environmental indicators that would come to mind when you think of the environment. Uh, are quite significantly impacted by food. And I thought that this is something that I could potentially have a bit more of an avenue to addressing than energy. 
because first of all, it's gotten a lot more attention over the last couple of years, but at that time it wasn't really on the environmental agenda. Uh, also, I knew that there was obviously quite strong links with health and public health, which is an interesting mine, with diet being a leading cause of poor health and disease. And I, I had a little bit of that knowledge coming from my health background. So I essentially decided to focus on food. Well, I, I didn't decide to focus on food then and there, but I decided to give food a crack. So the first thing I did was actually a, a startup competition, which was a bit of fun, but then I didn't get properly interested in food until I did an honors degree the following year where I decided to focus on food and then also reached out to some academics whose works I admired and then got involved in food research over the course of 2019, essentially, uh, with a few different projects. And that's turned into my main focus since. So it's, it's, I know that's a little bit of a long winding path, but yeah, it, it really was just a few things adding up over time into an interest, which I guess I've uh going into the last couple of years that's awesome i love no i love hearing nice long stories it's amazing to see where people come and what you know what they experience and where they what they draw from those experiences well in terms of learnings and the way they view the world it's great i love that story and do you did you feel like i've got to do something about this like i can't go back and you know finish medicine or do something else this is like i'm I'm someone involved in this world. I'm here where it's all happening. Let's do something about it. Yeah, exactly. So that was a real source of tension for me um, in 2018 because I realised that these problems, for example, climate change, were a lot more important than I'd realised, which really shocked me because it wasn't something that I was often talking about with my friends or in my studies or... I knew that some people were concerned about it, but it really wasn't something that was taking up much of my mental attention at all. Um, even considering the fact that I have a kind of long-standing interest in nature and wildlife, it just really wasn't on my mental agenda. And once I started reading more into it, I realized that it's something that we really do, do, do a lot more about. And then I kind of realized that, well, if it's not getting enough attention and it needs a lot more attention and i personally think it needs more attention i kind of need to do something about it myself uh there's not really it's not really any point in having this realization about how poor it is but then not really doing anything about it but so then yeah over the course of 2018 i was really trying to figure out what i actually could do about it uh because yeah i saw it as something that was essentially an engineering problem which mm. my understanding has broadened a lot but yeah I think that's exactly right, that I kind of realized that there was these problems which I had personally neglected and really kind of felt compelled that I needed to try, at least try to do something about it. Yeah, take responsibility, that's amazing. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of in a similar boat. Uh, that's kind of how I went through it to, into getting into food waste and stuff now. But like, and I obviously like it, you know, Bill Gates and stuff, they look at things like energy, but I'm the same as you, I don't, I can't, wrap my head around those concepts like things mm. i can't see i'm like no nah, i'm out of it so um like physics chemistry that like it's interesting and it's great and it's, i love maths but it's um it's a bit too much for personally for me so um that's amazing i love that and so so where are you where are you based now what's your qualification what, what are you working on at the moment 
Yeah, well, first of all, I, yeah, I, I definitely think that what you're working on is very important in terms of food waste. That's a think it's something that we all obviously contribute to, um, but it's one of those issues that people really don't realize the impact it has. You think, oh, okay, I'm throwing some food out, might go in the bin, maybe it'll add to some landfill, but you really don't realize the kind of scale of all the other implications that it has in terms of producing methane, but then in terms of, for example, all the inputs that are just essentially wasted. So I think that's really great that you're taking that dive into that as well. Um, so could you repeat the question? Yeah, no, that's fine. Yeah, so no, thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's definitely, I kind of like, in terms of the broader food system, it's like, that's kind of the problem that I saw when I was like, I understand the hospital system. I'm a dietitian. Let's start there. And then over the time of my career, hopefully I can broaden out and be like, all right, let's get either further up or further down the food chain or food system supply chain. Um, but yeah, so where, where are you currently working now? What are you working on in terms of maybe a paper or yeah, a research project um, in, in your career at the moment? So there's a couple of things I'm working on. So for my honours, I did a research project that was a research degree so i essentially was inspired by another paper which i'll uh, discuss a little bit more detail later on but i essentially knew that there was some big reports that had come out about food and its impact on a healthy environment one in particular was the eat lancet commission which you might be aware of so that essentially came out beginning of 2019. And I, I found that really compelling in terms of combining health and the environment in terms of food and really demonstrating how important food is to each. Uh, but at the same time, I recognize that it's an academic report and in terms of climate and energy, we're sort of known about that to some degree for since the 1990s as a problem and something that we need to address. But I guess I realized that uh, it wasn't just technology and limitations of, for example, renewables or the price that was contributing to that being such a delayed action, I guess. So I really wanted to explore how those sorts of considerations in terms of politics and economics might be translating to food and holding back progress on, for example, obesity and addressing food's environmental impact. But at the same time, I was curious in what different groups, um, yeah, as you mentioned, different groups have different agendas and I really didn't know that much about the agendas of different groups. So I ended up doing 36 interviews of about an hour each with people from Australia's food system. So it was about a quarter from industry. So for example, farmers groups, um, industry representatives of different industries, people from government, so elected politicians, but also civil servants, people from NGOs, for example, people from environmental NGOs, animal welfare NGOs, uh, public health NGOs, consumer rights, big stuff, for example, and then researchers, uh, essentially trying to keep it as broad as possible and see what their priorities are in terms of Australia's food system, how they think we're tracking, do they think that our food system is delivering whatever it they think it should deliver, or do they think there's a lot of room for improvement? Are we heading in the right direction? Um, and also discussed a lot of things that were getting a lot of attention in the media as being quite controversial. So for example, GMOs, meat consumption, 
water use in the Murray, uh, animal rights protests, trying to see, I guess, get here, get a firsthand account of what these people thought about all of that, because these topics can be quite polarizing. It can be kind of easy to assume you know what different groups think. So I really wanted to see what, 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 what different people thought, what their priorities were, what people agreed about, what people disagreed about. Uh, and I guess with the ultimate aim of trying to get some more constructive dialogue or recognition that there might be areas of agreement, even in quite contentious topics. So I did that and now I'm working to turn that into a paper. Um, I'm also involved in the UN Food Systems Summit, as we discussed before, and then uh, also doing a little bit of study. So I'm doing some online uh, agricultural economics, actually, and also plan to do some environmental study in the near future. So they're, they're the main things I'm working on at the moment. That's amazing. Yeah, that sounds like a, such an amazing study, you know, getting different perspectives of different people who are... I guess in different positions of power to have decisions on what actually happens. Um, and there's, and I kind of get really not upset about this, but like you, you look at examples of like where the farmer comes out and said, you know, you're taking away our life, our livelihood by reducing the amount of meat that the country eats. And but we're like, we're really not changing our dietary choices for the farmer. We're doing that for the planet and that's it's really controversial because they're like well it's our job it's our livelihood it's you know put our food on the table what are we going to do um and i've never been in that situation to be able to be to understand where they were coming from but i think have, i would say you know it's quite a hard thing to to be um confronted with um but and i say governments making decisions saying right like just imagine that the i guess the repercussions like you said earlier about if we just cut I mean, we can't grow any more cows. Do you know what I mean? Like, they were just like, all right, we're done. Like, just the, the uproar that that would cause, you know, the change in the economics, um, as well as the food system itself. Um, and then, like you said, that you could diff different, um, I guess, nutrient intakes in different population groups to have potential stunting or whatever. Like, so it's, um, I guess, depending on what you target first might affect a bit of a ripple effect in what, what it affects next. Um, yeah, exactly. And, and that, that's an interesting point that you bring up livestock because that's something that I tried to understand. Like one of the things that's been going through our mind the last couple of years is why is this so controversial? And it's, it's obviously people don't like being told what to eat and it's the source of a lot of jobs. But I, I, I suspect that there's something more going on that makes it such a trigger point. Uh, for example, people don't get that much upset when people tell them to eat more vegetables or to eat less junk food. So I really was curious about what's going on and I definitely still have a limited understanding and I'm not from a rural area and I'm not a livestock farmer. So I think this is my slightly more informed opinion than it was before, but I essentially think that it's interesting because pre say 20 years ago or any time up until recently, essentially uh, livestock farming was really seen as kind of the backbone of Australia because lots of the founders started livestock farms and it was really one of the first major industries we had in Australia. And livestock farming was seen as essentially a way of providing healthy food, not just to Australia, but around the world. So improving nutrition, uh, making sure people had protein, making sure uh, people had enough to eat. And at the same time, 
Um, livestock farms actually cover quite a large percentage of the Australian landmass. Uh, I think it's roughly about 50% of Australia is uh, livestock farms. So at the same time, livestock farming was seen as a way that we, I guess, uh, steward the environment. So that, that, that image really was str essentially strong for first 200 years or so of Australia being colonized. And then all of a sudden uh, in the kind of recent past, there's been concerns about red meat's impact on our health, for example, in terms of colorectal cancer. There's been only really over the last 10 years concerns about livestock contributing to climate change. That really only kicked off in the late thousands it with it probably 2007. Um, and then also with lots of concerns about animal welfare. So it's essentially this thing where from a livestock farmer's perspective, if, if I can kind of take a guess, um, or I guess synthesize what I've heard is essentially for all this time, uh, it was seen as this really noble thing to do and really providing the backbone of Australia, our health, our environment, our economy. And then all of a sudden over the span of about five or 10 years, it's being attacked in all these different ways. And it's kind of seen, especially from what is seen as kind of out of touch people in cities who don't really know what they're talking about. Yeah. So, so it's really interesting. Because um, I, I think in Australia in particular, there's kind of the, I, I've read a little bit about this um, in terms of geography literature. It's kind of an idea of the farmer as a national hero. So I think that there's, there's lots of different things that make it quite an emotive topic beyond the fact that it's an important contributor to the economy. That I think that um, I'm only starting to begin to start to get my head around. And I think that if we see it only as controversial because of, for example, the fact that it provides jobs, which I definitely thought myself, I think we might be missing some quite important topics. It's, um... There's so many different ways to look at it. Like you said there, you know, there's, you know, I guess the economic way, the, the actual farmer themselves, the consumer, governments, and that's kind of, I guess, the repeating messages come out of today's conversation. But also, um, I guess, because we're so connected now and there's so much information out there, people are starting to become aware of not just, you know, farming practices, but everyone has a voice now, everyone has a Facebook or whatever, and they can point the finger. Whereas like, say 20 years ago, if someone's like, oh, what do you think it's like on a farm? How hard it is to be a farmer? And you'd be like, I wouldn't know. I don't know a farmer. Like you just, you would just have such disconnection to where your food comes from, what's in it, you know, what's the right thing to eat. Whereas now there's a, such a plethora of information um, in terms of obviously academia, but also online, blogs, social media that are just hitting us left, right and centre to kind of know uh, I guess inform us better, but also get, then we get a general opinion of what we think as well. Like, well, how have I been brought up? What do I think about that? Um, I can have a say now. Let's vote in this or do this this way. And then it starts to this bit of a ripple effect then again on who, whose people's opinions um, impact. But then in terms of behaviour change, I think screaming down someone's throat saying you should stop farming is not really the, the, you know, the best approach uh, to go about potentially changing uh, some of the the pillars in the food system it's more about 
a consolidated approach, like what can we all do together? Like I can eat a little bit less red meat, but this meat can go here, or I'm going to grow a little bit less, but I'm going to start growing something else as well. Um, different strategies are involved. But then again, it's like getting the people to buy in, like you said, if it's not going to benefit in terms of the way the world works with economy, it's like I actually need to put food on the table. You know, my cows are the best income for me. That's I have to keep doing that, unfortunately, to, you know, stay alive. So it's... Um, there's so many different ways to look at it, isn't there? Yeah, I think my main takeaway is that I used to think, oh, this is quite simple. Um, similar to fossil fuels, I thought, well, it's pretty obvious what we need to do. We just need to stop burning coal. And um, yeah. the, only, the only thing that really is holding us back is the, the, the fossil fuel lobby. And um, what's the like, what's the holdup, essentially? Yeah. Um, Knocking on the door, what's going on? Yeah. Yeah, whereas I realised that... Um, there's often a lot more, I don't know, this might seem obvious from an outside perspective, but things in some ways are more complicated. And I think that um, fossil fuel transition is obviously complicated, um, at least in some regards. So for example, you can't just overnight turn all the coal plants off and because you obviously need to have um, renewables infrastructure and storage and all those sorts of things first. But I think it's even more complicated with um, food because, for example, lots of areas of Australia, the only real use for the land would be either livestock or just essentially turning it back into wild land because you can't really grow crops. You're not, nobody's going to realistically move there anytime soon to live. So it's, there's, there's lots of considerations like that of... Um, all right, well, like, what even is the ideal amount of life, purely from an environmental perspective, it's not clear what the absolutely ideal quantity of livestock production is. Because, for example, uh, if you had zero livestock, then you wouldn't be able to, for example, reuse lots of food waste, or you would also potentially need more land than having uh, than having a smaller amount of livestock than we do today, but it's it's not it's not clear what the actual ideal quantity is from any perspective, really. Um, and I, I think there's quite compelling evidence that there's not really any way for a population of seven billion, let alone ten billion, to eat the quantities of um, these products that we do in Australia or developed countries, that's quite clear, but in terms of the actual, so I guess the direction is um, not 100% clear, but I would say it's quite clear in terms of the scientific evidence, but in terms of the actual end goal, I think that that's still quite ambiguous, whereas for energy, it's quite clear that we need to, at some point, have zero coal, whereas you can't really make those sorts of sweeping statements in terms of food for a whole range of reasons. So I guess I've slowly gotten a lot more humble with um, the amount I think I know and I think how complicated lots of these things are, especially when you add in, for example, livelihoods, when you add in the fact that lots of people don't have enough to eat, like you've mentioned, when you add in uh, like resilience to climate change and droughts, it just at, at, every, at every step gets much more complicated. So I think that um, 
yeah, I guess that's why it's important to hear different perspectives as well. Um, and yeah, I guess that would probably be one of my takeaways the last couple of years at least. Yeah, it's it's kind of like, you know, one might stall the other. You know, taking down one pillar is not going to, like you said, going zero and 100 and 100 and zero both ways. It needs to be some sort of hybrid model where everyone can try and benefit, but also not just in terms of people consuming food, but like people and planet and animals benefiting all together. Um, all that planetary animal, human welfare type stuff. So it's amazing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, now, I've got this question here, um, and you may have mentioned it. I'm not sure. You said you were going to uh, go through a bit of a paper later on. but So I'd like you to tell us about one of your favourite papers, one that, one that you've read, uh, but also one of yours that you've potentially have published or you're in the writing of, at the moment. Uh, so there's, there's two ones to mention there, and then we'll uh, after that we'll uh, wrap up. Yeah, sure. So I mentioned earlier that there was a paper that inspired my recent research and that was something published in 2013 by Tara Garnett who's a researcher in the UK uh, the director of what was previously called the Food Climate Research Network and it's called Food Sustainability Problems Perspectives and Solutions and this is a step so, so Dr Tara Garnett is essentially a leading figure in um, food broadly but specifically on bringing food onto the agenda in terms of climate change and wrote about different perspectives people have about what to do with livestock production essentially uh, so it's people recognize that something needs to happen whether that is just increasing the efficiency of production or whether it's reducing consumption and she mapped out three competing perspectives and they are the belief that essentially uh, it's called efficiency. So that's the belief that our dietary preferences are kind of fixed. There's not much you can do about that uh, or you could, should do about that. People should essentially be free to try to consume what they eat, what they want to eat. And the solution is therefore to Try to increase the efficiency of production so that you can get the same or more production with less environmental footprint and that is kind of i guess agnostic to social considerations um, another perspective is that the main problem is essentially people eating too much livestock so the main solution is needing to reduce consumption and the third perspective is that it's essentially a problem of equity and of politics and government governance in that we already produce enough food and there's a bunch of people who are still hungry. And if we essentially more equitably distributed food, then we'd actually have enough food to begin with. And lots of these problems are stemming from, for example, power imbalances and uh, certain groups being quite disadvantaged and the main thing is needing a sort of social transformation of the food system where lots of people are empowered, some people's power is reduced. And the reason I found this paper really eye-opening was that all of these three perspectives are pointing to evidence and uh, sometimes overlapping bodies of evidence, but interpreting it in very different ways. And the, the ways that those that is being interpreted 
is really influenced by their, for example, worldview and their values. So for example, the efficiency perspective is, I guess, underlined by the value that, or the belief that, uh, I guess, in individual freedoms and in uh, optimism in terms of the ability of technology to overcome our problems, whereas um, the third perspective of needing a social transformation is more underlined by, by for example, notions of equality and um, I guess those more social considerations. So I found this really interesting in that it showed how and why different people can arrive at such different opinions about what the core problem is and what needs to be done, even if they're referring to evidence. So I guess it showed that lots of these issues aren't as simple as just looking at what the evidence says, because there's lots of different ways that it could be interpreted, especially when there's questions that don't have a 100% clear answer. And uh, Garnett kind of concluded with the fact that the truth, if you can call it that, is, I guess, a merging of these different perspectives and they all have their own strengths and weaknesses. So I, I found that really interesting in terms of helping my own understanding of why things are contested and why some people arrive at completely different opinions from the same body of evidence. And that really, uh, I guess, inspired my approach with my honours research, which I mentioned before. That's awesome. And that'll, uh, that'll probably be maybe your uh, favourite paper that you'll be working on at the moment of yours, that one? Um, that's a good question. I, I guess I'll mention the paper that you read, which I was discussing on the Food System Summit, just because I haven't um, discussed it yet. But that was essentially, um, I was acting as an assistant with that. I didn't lead the project, but it was essentially an analysis of the health and environmental implications of achieving different countries' national dietary guidelines. I'm sure that listeners would have a vague idea what dietary guidelines are, but they're essentially the government's official advice on what a healthy diet is. And we looked at what if people actually ate according to those, because people largely don't. And up to 87% of dietary guidelines were actually not compatible with the Paris Climate Agreement and also weren't actually, uh, in most cases, as healthy as they could be. So I, I found that paper quite interesting because there's been a suspicion that dietary guidelines might not be sustainable just because, I guess, an extrapolation of the sorts of quantities of different food groups that have been recommended. but that was really interesting to be involved with because it kind of quantified the impacts and then looked at, uh, I think, 85 different guidelines impossible in total. So that was definitely the largest paper I've been involved with. And um, yeah, I guess the one that I was discussing, which uh, got you to reach out initially. It's really interesting. I, I mentioned this to most people I talk about because we we're quite trained on the dietary guidelines when, even when I was still at, um, in undergraduate school at Griffith doing nutrition and dietetics. But I think they're serving just from memory. It might not be around there, but uh, I think the AGHE, so Australian Guide to Healthy Eating, their recommendation for red meat serving is 60 grams, I think. Um, and whereas you go out to dinner for a restaurant and it's like a 300 
or 500 gram steak, like pick one. And you go, hang on, that's five servings of red meat according to the guidelines. So there's definitely a huge um, discrepancy of the tank, you know, what, what people eat in their culture as well as what's recommended. And then what else also, um, I guess, sustainable, but then also what's going to, what's important for their physiology or their current disease level. And there's, you know, dietary guidelines are important because they try and hit everyone with a, a bit of a, a fishnet. Um, but they're not, uh, I guess, how do I say? I'm not going to say they're not, they're important for everyone, but they're not contextualized. It's all very contextualized, you know, depending on your, uh, where you are, what you do, your lifestyle, those types of things as well. And as well as, in, as your nutrition education as well. So um, how was your coffee or your tea? How was that? How did that go? Yeah, it was good. Uh, I always finish them quite quickly so that I, always want to make another one and I'd end up having a dozen coffees a day if I did that. But yeah, Casey, what about you? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm still working this year. I texted my friend, he got a new machine and I went up to Sunshine Coast and he gave me this one. So I've done a few blind shots to uh, clean it out and we'll, it's been in his garage for about a year. So um, hopefully I'm not getting any uh, any gunk in my coffee. But um, <laughs> that's an awesome combo. So what was that, a soy, ice soy latte, was it? Yeah, well, I, uh, it's just instant coffee, but oh, that's right. Yeah, get the macaroni going. What's your What's your instant of choice? Uh, I think this is just the Nescafe blend fruit four twenty three. So uh, as standard instant coffee as you can get, really. Yeah, that's awesome. And you are you you at home today, or are you at a, an office? Yeah, space? I'm, I am at home. Yeah, yeah, amazing. You? Thanks so much for your time today, Luke. I really do appreciate it. that. Was a great conversation, and I can't wait to uh, share it with listeners. Oh uh, yeah, thanks thanks a lot for reaching out and yeah, keep going with your great work on food waste. Yeah, you too, man. I can't wait to read a, a publication soon. Cool. Well, yeah, thanks a lot and uh, good to speak. To finish off, as always, thanks for listening. I really do appreciate it as this is a passion of mine. Don't forget to leave a review. It helps other people find the show. And please share this episode on your social media or tell a friend to continue spreading the message of the Cooks community. You can sign up to our weekly email by clicking the link in the description of this episode and follow us on our Instagram and Facebook at the Cooks community. Until next time, remember to breathe.